most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Belly, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. It's 2021. Welcome to another episode of the Orson Welles Commentaries. My team will be back hopefully next week with me, but I thought I'd introduce this one myself. There's not too much going on in this one because Orson reads a story that was submitted by one of his audience members. And I think that would be so thrilling to send him in a story and have him actually read the story to a national audience. That is pretty cool stuff. And then to get a ready out of the deal, too. Anyway, then he gets into the Senate and some things that he disagrees with what's going on in the Senate. And we'll hear about that. Uh, just always interesting to hear Orson. And I love his reading voice. It's just so eloquent and so beautifully presented. Also love the sound quality of these episodes. I um, we're uh, now in that uncharted territory area where these episodes have been basically lost to time for the last seventy-five years, and this is the first time I think they're getting really presented to much of an audience. So I hope you really enjoy these, and going forward, there'll be more and more and more of these episodes that haven't been heard in 75 years. Without further ado, here is Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles speaking, and this is the radio program that gives you a radio, a Leah five-tube table model for every letter we can use. This being 15 minutes of commentary and opinion, we'd like it to be your commentary and your opinion as well as mine. Also, we spin a yarn occasionally, and our story today came in the mailbag from one of you who listened in. It well deserves the radio we're sending its author, and I think it deserves your attention. We'll get to it in just a minute. To some people, the name Lear may be new, but that doesn't mean that the name Lear is new to radio. Far from it. Lear has been building radios since 1930, and they have been very special radios for aircraft. They have had to be built with the utmost consideration for perfection of design, precise engineering, and fine craftsmanship. Today, Lear is building home radios. And as you would expect, when this experience becomes linked with full knowledge of the latest advances and fine craftsmanship, these radios become instruments of rare excellence. One of the sensational developments you will find in Lear radios is a new method of recording. It's newer than wire recording. It records sound on tape. This has many advantages. Tape is less expensive, so it costs less to build up a library of recordings. And as Lear has developed it, tape does not have to be rewound. Whatever you record can be played back immediately. Sound on tape is just one of the new things you will find in Lear radios. It's just one of the reasons you will want your new radio to be a Lear. L-E-A-R. Now back to Orson Welles. Here's that letter. It was January 13th, 1926. I'd just come back to the ranch from town. I drove the old Ford into the barn, turned off the key, and sat. 
I remember I was in kind of a daze. The words, one year at the most, kept going through my head. That was the verdict I'd heard that morning. Two doctors and a specialist. One year at the most. As I sat there, I thought of a lot of things I should have done. Now there wasn't enough time. It was a tough break and it would take some adjusting to, but life would go on just the same. I got out of the car. There were endless jobs I had to do on the ranch. I took my pruning shears and saw and went out into the orchard. At the top of the orchard was an old apple tree, twisted and scarred, full of rotten wood and borers. Something like me, I thought. I'd intended taking it out last year, but just never got around to it. Started sowing. Halfway through, I had to rest. Two blue jays unmusically came to life and then were quiet. Everything was quiet. The fog rolled damply around me and suddenly, in this gray stillness, the old tree groaned. Of course, it must have been the wind that moved the tree, yet the fog lay thick and still as ever. I started sawing again, a feeling of urgency coming over me. I must get this tree down quickly. The sweat broke out all over me, but I went on till the saw took its final bite, and the old tree shivered and stiffly rolled over to the ground. I was so tired I sat down on the stump to get my strength back. I noticed the tree had fallen in such a position as to show two rotten holes in its trunk, and these holes seemed to be looking at me like the eyes of some unhappy hound. You shouldn't have cut me down. I could almost hear the old tree say it. I got up and went towards the house. I was sick of the old tree. When we burnt prunings in February, the old tree was still there. I hadn't had time to haul it away yet. March came and I gave up all heavy work. Towards the middle of April, the rains cleared off and a spell of real spring weather came. I thought I'd take a walk around the orchard and see how the buds were swelling. When I got to the top, I was surprised to see the old tree in full bloom. I'd never seen it, or any other tree for that matter, so covered with flower. I looked around and could not see another tree with any color showing. I sat down on the severed stump and observed the old tree. The two eyes still looked at me mournfully. I felt that this tree had something to tell me, and I found myself talking aloud to it. Why don't you give up and die, I said. I cut you down and still you bloom. The two eyes just stared. Down the tree. I began to wish I'd never cut it down at all. At least not until the end of the year. I gave the tree a gentle pat and walked off. Unaccountably miserable. Every day I straggled up to the top of the orchard to see how the old tree was coming along. And by May the blossoms were off, but a fine crop of leaves had arrived. To my amazement, I noticed that the blossoms had set and that the tree was covered with little apples. The stump had become my regular resting place by now. Every day I'd sit in the sun for half an hour or so and try to forget yesterday and tomorrow. I believe my chief concern at this time was to see when the old tree would give up the ghost and which would be first, it or I. June was hot and it was all I could do to get up to the stump, but I made it every day. Color came into the apples on the old tree a good three weeks before the rest of the orchard. The apples on it were smaller and of a golden color. 
I figured by the end of June, if the old tree held out, it would ripen the whole crop. On the 29th of June, I went up as usual. Every apple on the tree was a golden red. The old tree had done it. I sat down on the stump. See here, old tree, I said. Maybe I cut you down too soon. For that, I'm sorry. But I would like to try some of your apples if you don't mind too much. I looked at the eyes. They seemed less mournful. In fact, they looked as if they were closing. This, I felt, was mute assent to my wish, so I got up and picked an apple from the nearest branch. I must have shaken the tree as I did so, for the supporting branches that held the old tree off the ground cracked and let it down with a rustling sigh. The rotten trunk caved in just below the eyes, closing them at last. As the tree had settled to the ground, every apple and every leaf had left the tree and lay around it a red golden mantle, a tribute to the endless urge for life. I walked slowly away, the apple still in my hand. Before I reached the house, something had happened to me. I felt a new surge of strength. Suddenly, all the vast accumulation of knowledge of the followers of Hippocrates was as naught. That old tree had spoken to me at last. Rotten to the core, cut off from the soil, it had flowered, leafed, and fruited. In that moment, I knew that the urge of life had become strong again in me. Once again, the future beckoned with outstretched hands. I planted the seeds from the apple that day. Next spring, I planted a sturdy seedling outside my window. As I threw the last shovel full of dirt into the hole, I turned and faced uphill and lifted my hat to the old apple tree. Sincerely yours, Leland H. Noel. Well, Mr. Noel gets a Lear radio with my good wishes for the next 20 years. Now some news and opinions. The news is bad. In Washington today, we have the unlovely spectacle in the United States Senate of an ugly-minded little handful of so-called Democrats filibustering against democracy. If that word democracy means equality of opportunity, a permanent fair employment practices committee means a good firm step towards spelling it out. But look, just look what's happening. The southern, quote, liberals, unquote, are shown up very, very badly. Claude Pepper, for instance, one of the chief orators of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, liked nothing better than to be vice president, but poor Claude dashed his hopes on the rocks by a lengthy pronunciamento against FEPC. Then there's Lister Hill of Alabama, probably the next majority leader, and you should have heard him ranting about what would happen to the nation as the FEPC came through. Both men have more than four years to run on their terms, and as one veteran Washington cynic put it to me the other day, they didn't have to demagogue. Claude and Lister could have stayed safely liberal for three more years and then backtracked in time for re-election. And so many of us hoped Senator Fulbright of Arkansas had become a real leader in the defense of democracy. But ridiculing FEPC last week, Fulbright described democracy as the rule of the mob. The men you and I elected to the Senate are confronted with greater problems than have ever faced men at any time in the whole long history of men. Our representatives are supposed to find a way of controlling atomic energy, of preventing World War III, which includes the immediate prevention of mass starvation in Europe and Asia, the sure way to world war and world tyranny. There's reconversion, and our senators are supposed to see that our soldiers come home, that they get homes to live in and clothes to wear and food to eat and jobs to do. 
But our senators have not had the opportunity for some time now to cope with any of these issues. If you haven't studied this current filibuster, you may share the popular belief that our senators are arguing the matter of fair employment practices for all Americans. Our senators are doing no such thing. Since January 17th, they've been considering the Senate Journal for that day. Our history books will say that every day since that day, quote, the Senate resumed consideration of Mr. Hoey's motion to amend the journal of the proceedings of the Senate of Thursday, January 17th, 1946, unquote, which is, of course, the purest parliamentary hanky-panky, a cheap trick to prevent a vote on FEPC, since there can be no cloture when the Senate is simply considering alleged errors in the Senate journal. Overton of Louisiana says we'll make the journal for that day a veritable work of art. Every day, thousands of people die of starvation. Every day, more atomic energy is harnessed for destruction. But every day is January 17th in the United States Senate. In Washington, the long, troubled Potomac rises and lowers on a scene of mounting chaos. Confusion multiplies like little rabbits. The president gets tough, then softens. He turns left, shudders, turns right, squirms, twists and twirls, and then stands still. No man gets his way. No plan gets a fair trial. Nobody's happy. And now we hear the president is going on a vacation. Where to? The moon? Where else can Harry Truman find a holiday? Now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. As we said before, Lear has been building fine radios for more than 16 years. Only aviators got them because they were special radios for aircraft. Now Lear is building home radios and you'll be able to have a set for your home made with the same engineering foresight and the same precise manufacture. You'll find Lear home radios in a number of beautiful models, tastefully designed and made with the master craftsman's touch. Some include television. Some have the sound on tape recording. Some provide FM and world scanning shortwave. And there'll be an entirely new remote tuning control which lets you tune in any station on the dial without leaving your easy chair. About the prices, well, right there is a surprise. The finest radio phonograph console combination that has television and everything sells for about $500. And at the other end of the line, there's a good-looking, capable table model at $19.95. It won't be long now before these radios will be reaching your dealer, and you'll be able to hear them for yourself. We know you're going to agree that you get the most for every dollar you invest when you buy a radio that carries the name Lear. L-E-A-R. Now back to Orson Welles, whose views and opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent those of Lear Incorporated. Every Sunday morning before sitting down at this microphone, I step into the newsroom here at the ABC studios for a last look at the tickers. There wasn't much cooking today. I was on my way out empty-handed, as a matter of fact, when I noticed a clip with the word that on Guernsey and the Channel Islands, at the comfortable age of 79, a notable storyteller of my youth and of my father's youth had breathed his last during the night. E. Phillips Oppenheim wrote over a hundred novels, none of which will survive him by many printings, but more than any fiction here, Mr. Oppenheim is responsible for the popular conception of the glamorous international spy. Well, personally, I've known several spies here and there about the world, and none of them were glamorous in the least. The professionals, who are, of course, the heroes and villains of the Oppenheim legends, are underpaid and live out the greater part of their lives in conditions of the meanest squalor. 
I remember one of these, a seedy old gentleman who was passing himself off as an anthropologist at the time, riding down with me in a smelly bus from Ceuta in the mountains of Spanish Morocco. We'd seen a good bit of each other during the past week, and as is frequently the case with these gentlemen, we quickly ran out of permissible topics for conversation. He was reading. The book was an omnibus collection of the spy stories of E. Phillips Oppenheim. Well, I see my time's up. Thanks for letting me come to call. And please join me next time. Till then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company.